The uh, title of this message is Practical Christianity. The practical side of the book of Romans started really with the 12th chapter. All of the other chapters were doctrinal and preparatory for uh, the practical admonitions which we have been studying, beginning with really the presentation of our bodies to Christ as a living sacrifice and then spiritual gifts. And that's what we're looking at this morning again, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 13. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity or the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. That's as far as we will go this morning. In my last message, if you were here, was titled Love Alive in the Church. And it really covered just one verse, 12.9, where Paul said, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. In other words, you run away from it as something very offensive. And you tenaciously cling or hold on to that which is good. Now Jesus said that the world would know that we are Christians by the love that we have for one another. And sometimes that's hard to reconcile with the actions of Christians and and the actions even within a church. How many churches have suffered church splits? You have to wonder what the world thinks, right? How kind of a love are we having for one another? But now we want to take a look at what real practical Christianity looks like by, by looking how believers respond to one another with biblical love. And Paul, beginning in verse 10, delivers some rapid-fire commands. And he tells us, if you follow along, that real Christians, verse 10, practice familial love. And then in the latter part of verse 10, they try to take the lead in honoring others. Verse 11, they're fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12, they're joyful, patient in tribulation, prayerful, charitable. Verse 14, they return good for evil. Verse 15, they are present for others in both the good and the hard times. Verse 16, they're humble. And then verses 17 through 19, they, they strive for peace by trusting in God's justice. So practical Christianity to begin is characterized by heartfelt brotherly love. Paul says, be kindly affectioned one to another with with brotherly love. The word brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. It's actually first in in the Greek word order. And then it's followed by the word philo, there's your stem again for love, and storge. Brotherly love is love between friends or brothers, close, people closely associated. The, the word adelphos means from the same wound, so you have the idea of brother. And then philos uh, storgai, storge refers to the tender affection among family members, which Paul assumes to be the norm, that Christians are to have a tender 
familial-like affection for one another. Parents are to love their children in a special, affectionate, tender way. And it's beautiful when you see that. But that's the same kind of love that Jesus expects us to have as members of the household of God, the children of God. Jesus said, you are all brethren. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Hebrews 13.1 says, let brotherly love continue. And that's the Greek word meno, which means abide, remain among you. And what he's really telling us that is the church is to be characterized by an atmosphere of brotherly love. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned or sincere love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And that word fervently means without ceasing. It's the same idea of praying without ceasing, praying fervently. So we are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, despite our differences, despite the disappointments we have with one another, we are to love one another with an unceasing love. Nothing is to interrupt that love. That's the atmosphere that we are to abide in as as believers. And really, we know that salvation brings Christian to Christians together in a, in a bond of mutual love. But that love has to be nourished in order to flourish in a church and to keep growing. Like anything else, it, it can wane. It can die. So we really all have to be active in looking out for how can I, as an individual member of the household of God, the family of God, foster more love in, in this church household? So what does brotherly love look like? Paul tells us, brotherly love, verse 10, this latter part, brotherly love puts another brother or sister first. So King James has in honor preferring one another. But the the meaning really is outdoing one another in showing honor. You are to outdo me in showing honor. I am to outdo you in showing honor. Honor is the Greek word time, and it means to put a high value upon something. That's what happens when you honor someone. So we, Kenneth Weist, in his commentary, says, In the sphere of brotherly love, have a family affection for one another, vying or competing with one another in showing honor. Now, I think we all know that in families, among brothers and sisters, Tell me if I'm wrong, but there is an awful lot of competition, right? One tries sometimes to outdo the other, to come out on top. They want their... That that happens, right? And and what Paul is telling us here is that Christians are to put one another on top. They're not to seek to get on top. They're to seek to put the other person on top. And to honor someone is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for the other individual. To appreciate what they do, and their contribution to the body of Christ, to appreciate their prayers, so forth and so on. 
You know, there's a scripture in Acts 28 where it says it came to pass on the island of Malta, verse 8, that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and a, and, and a bloody flux, whatever that is, to whom Paul entered in and he prayed and he laid his hands on him and he had apostolic power and he healed him. It was The healing was instantaneous. And it says, so that when this was done, others also who had disease in, diseases in the island came and they were healed. The indication they were all healed. Amazing thing. But then it says, who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they gave us such things as was necessary. So Paul goes in by the power of God. He heals these people. And then, and then they're just bestowing this honor on him. This appreciation, this gratitude. Admiration, really. In Romans 13, it says in verse 7, Render therefore to all their due tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to what? To whom honor is due. You are to render honor to whom honor is due. And from the scripture we learn that each member of the church family is to take the lead. That's what it means. To take the lead in showing honor to someone else. To appreciate them. To show admiration for you know, their contribution to the body of Christ and, and just, just for their godly character. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. So seeking honor, putting someone first, means you put yourself behind. But in lowliness of mind, that's your humility, let each esteem others better than themselves. So just think of how much better your home life would be if every member of the home operated by that principle. They wanted to put the other person first, their brother or sister or so forth. And the same is true in the life of the church. So then secondly, he says, brotherly love is service-oriented, verse 11. Not slothful, that word means sluggish, in business. And that word really means the carrying out of a task with diligence. Amplified by the words, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So the negative here comes first. Don't be slothful. And then the positive, be fervent in spirit. The Bible repeatedly condemns laziness. All you have to do is read through the book of Proverbs. And, and you'll find that a sluggard has a million excuses why he or she didn't do something they were supposed to do. Right? The sluggard says, my favorite one is, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street. A fierce lion roaming the streets. And that's a great excuse, right? I don't think it'll work. I have a little contrast here between the ant and the sluggard because we're told to go to the ant you know who is industrious and here's the the little contrast here the ant is wise the sluggard is foolish the ant's a hard worker the sluggard is lazy the ant perseveres the sluggard sluggard enjoys idleness the ant is cooperative he works together within his community the sluggard doesn't want to work with anybody he hates work. The ant's diligent. The sluggard, on the other hand, he thinks he knows it all. He doesn't have to really apply himself for the good of all. 
Ants are responsible. Sluggard and excuses. Ants are take the initiative. Sluggard typically, he might start something, but he hardly finishes it. It's really hard for a sluggard to finish something. Ant enjoys learning better ways of doing things, communicating. There's tremendous communication within an ant colony. On the other hand, the sluggard, you can't teach him anything because he doesn't want to learn. So hopefully we're all ants, right? And uh, we're not sluggards. I like what Frank Tigger said. He said, some people would do anything to be able to do nothing. (laughs) Hope you're not like that. Another said, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Not because he can't, but because he won't. Brotherly love, Paul says, on the other hand, is not lazy, but it's passionate to help others in their service to the Lord. He uses the word being fervent in spirit. You know what fervent means? Literally, it means to boil with heat, to boil over. I, I think of a little kettle on the, on the stove and, you know, the whistle blowing it, or maybe have it in a pot and it's boiling over. That's the image of biblical fervency. Something is happening. Look in Acts chapter 18. And you'll find such a man. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria. Alexandria was the the center of learning, ancient learning there. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. It says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being what? Fervent in spirit. There's your same terminology. Fervent in spirit. He loved the Lord. He spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. He was limited in some way to the the knowledge of the truth, but what he did know, he, he uh, he used for God, in service to God. So, Fervency is the idea of zeal. And in this particular instance, the zeal is associated with doing good. We also know, and we just learned this in Romans chapter 10, that there is a zeal without knowledge. That's not good. Paul says, you prayed to God for Israel for their salvation because I perceive they have a what? A zeal for God, but it's uninformed. It's not without knowledge. Rather than accepting the righteousness of God, the God provided in Christ. They were going about trying to establish their own righteousness. And a lot of what you see in the signs and wonder movement is zeal without knowledge. Many false cults have a great deal of zeal. You you can't fault them for their zeal. The Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, they go door to door and they're zealous in seeking converts to their faith. And the question that comes to my mind is why we see so little fervency for the things of God in the church. Why so little? Why so little? And the truth is that life has a way of cooling you off spiritually. Because it focuses your attention on the necessities which need to be done every day. And, and you find yourself cluttered up with, with the things of life. 
And all of a sudden, your passion for the Lord, your love for God's word, prayer, it gets pushed aside. And that's not good. And you add to that the difficulties and the infirmities that come with life. And to be honest, it's hard to be consistently passionate about your faith in Jesus. Life can become very mundane, very ordinary. And people struggle just to get through another day. But you know, the Bible says that there were a group of Christians who lived in much more difficult circumstances than than we do. Many more trials. They didn't have the luxuries that we have. They didn't have the things that the government provides for us. They suffered persecution. And yet the Bible says that within 30 years of the day of Pentecost, they turned their world upside down. That's fervency. And turning their world upside down means turning the world right side up, which is what we need to do, right? Listen, when you see a man or a woman born again, their life has been turned upside down. And by that I mean it becomes right side up. They're no longer crooked, but they're righteous. That's what the word upright means. And the challenge is to continue that uprightness, that righteousness, and make a difference with your life for Christ. Keep pressing on. Don't quit. Don't go back to the old ways described in Ephesians 2 as the course of this world. Listen, you're either walking the highway to heaven or you're walking the course of this world. There's no neutral zone. You're either pressing on for God, forgetting those things that are behind, or you're, or you're clinging to the world in some fashion, not letting fully go. Now, a fervent zeal for the Lord in action is noticeable by the good that it does. When you see Christians who are loving one another and they're fervent in spirit serving the Lord, the world takes notice. Don't think they don't. There's a noted atheist named Matthew Paris, who also happens to be a homosexual. He writes this about the work of Christian missionaries in Africa where he grew up. He grew up in Malawi. And he says, recently traveling in Malawi refreshed another, another belief too. Listen, this is coming from an atheist. One I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation that confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my atheistic worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. What's he talking about? Something caught this atheist's attention that made him think, huh, this is a real challenge to my atheistic worldview. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular organizations, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. 
education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. That coming from an atheist. He saw the fervency of the Christian missionaries in Africa doing their work, their works of charity, their works of educating the children, taking them out of poverty, and showing them love and compassion. We must keep a fervent zeal for the Lord going. You know, despite some of the good that they had done, and they did do good things, Jesus told the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, I have something against you. Because you have what? You have left your first love. Your zeal for the Lord has grown cold. Put Jesus first in our hearts and God will direct us to services, places of service for his glory. You have to get the, the, the order right. When Jesus was asked what the great commandment was, what did he say? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is a zealous love. That's the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. And he said, the second is this. It's the result of the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God and I love God with my heart, whole soul, mind, and strength, the love of God is going to flow through us to other people, to our neighbors. Now listen, fervent in spirit is not a wild, emotionally charged state. It's an eagerness and a willingness to serve the Lord as opportunities are presented to us. The opportunities presented to me may be different than the opportunities presented to you. Some opportunities we all have in common. But ask yourself this question, what am I doing for the Lord presently and what can I be doing? I'm not telling you to overload your plate. But what are you doing for the Lord? And what can you be doing? Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, God sees everything, right? And God rewards what we do. And he takes away rewards if necessary. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you do things to be seen of men, it won't last. That zeal won't... Something will change within you. You'll tire doing it because... You'll make some people, you know, you'll appreciate the things you do. Other people will criticize the things that you do. So if you do it for men, you're going to be disappointed. You have to set that aside. Be thankful for the people who do appreciate it. But do it unto the Lord. Listen, I would have quit a long time ago if I was doing things for men in the sight of men. 
It's, the only, it's only the knowledge of doing it for God who sees all and rewards all. And because of what he's done for me, that, that keeps me serving and persevering. Practical Christianity is, is characterized by a persevering faith. Paul says rejoicing in hope. And that's a present tense verb. It indicates a persistent attitude of inner joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, right? So if we have true biblical joy, it's, it's, it's because of the Spirit of God working in us. And it says rejoice in hope. Actually, the Greek has the definite article, the hope. Rejoice in the hope. So some scholars think it may be referring to a specific hope. What would be that specific hope? The rapture of the church? Possibly. The rapture of the church is what the church longs for. It's a confident expectation of something to come. That is biblical hope. Something assured by God. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that you sorrow not as others who what? Have no hope. Ephesians 2 says the whole world, everybody in this world apart from Christ has no hope. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Every single person you pass by, I mean you don't know if they're a Christian or not, but if it you know, looks pretty convincing that they're not, you're walking by, a, you're seeing a hopeless person. They have no hope. They're living without hope. They're going to die without hope, without Christ. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, also, those who sleep in Jesus will, will God bring with them. That's our hope. Ask the unsaved what their hope is. And you're going to receive many different answers, right? Our hope as believers is an assurance that we will be forever with the Lord and partakers of his heavenly glory. That's our hope. Back in Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is my hope. Nothing on this earth could surpass that. Nothing. Nothing on this earth, no disappointment can take away from that. Because everything on this earth is only temporary. My hope in the glory of God is eternal. Eternal. That's why Peter said, 1-3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for, for you, for me, praise God. But listen, that's looking ahead. So while hope looks to the future, it is transformational for the believer in the present. It's a living hope. Christian hope our hope in, in seeing God and the glory that is yet to be revealed is not an idle hope. It's an active hope. 
1 John 3, 1, Behold what water of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world doesn't know us because he didn't know him. Loose translation. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we will be, but we know that when he appears we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in himself, every woman who has that hope in herself, purifies themselves even as he is pure. What does it mean? It means we're working on our sanctification. Biblical hope is transformational in the present. We're being transformed from glory to glory, the scripture says, until we ultimately arrive in what? Glory. Eternal glory. Now, if we have biblical hope, Paul says, we can be patient in tribulation. What's tribulation? Thalipsis. Thalipsis is the Greek word. And it describes an inward pressure, anguish, distress, brought about by external circumstances. The calamities of war, persecution, illness, or other things that make you feel at times like you are being squeezed and and crushed. Maybe even crushed in your spirit. Actually, the noun thalipsis was used in a medical sense of a pulse. The feeling of pressure. That's the Greek word for tribulation. You feel those pressures, those pulsations of life that make life difficult. But he says we can be patient in those pressures. Patient means to endure. It means to abide under. It means to remain in a place or persevere. It means staying put in your faith in the place of adversity. It means you came to Jesus and you're resting in Him. That's where your faith is. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Be strong. Listen, you all know it, and I all know it because you've heard it preached many times. Tribulations are a necessary part of character building for the Christian. We would all like to do without them, right? But God knows exactly what we need to refine us. Paul, Acts 14, the missionary journey, says they preached the gospel to Derby, and then they taught many there, and then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. This is the first missionary journey. And it says they were confirming the souls, in other words, building them up, and confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And then he says this, and I'm sure these were words of great comfort to new believers, that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Not exactly a positive message, but it was a truthful one. It was a necessary one. Our continuation in the faith is dependent upon a number of things. Paul mentions one here, that I think is most important, continuing instant in prayer. Prayer is the necessity that makes joy, hope, and patient endurance possible. Now listen, this is not ordinary prayer. This is persistent, believing prayer. This is the man or woman devoted to prayer. Henry Morris said this, I miss him, Patience and tribulation and a joyful hope in Christ 
surely presupposes a life in close communion with God. The words continuing instant represent just one Greek word, meaning literally ever enduring in. The picture is one of being always ready to pray whenever the need arises. Praying without ceasing. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you. And then he says this about Epaphras, always laboring fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Listen, I pray for the difficulties that I have. I pray for difficulties in, in my family. I pray for your difficulties. But more than that, I pray for your sanctification. That you would stand perfect and complete in the will of God. That's, that's, what, that's how Epaphras prayed. Because we're going to have health challenges. We're going to have family trials and difficulties. We just can't escape it. We're in this world. So it's okay to pray for God's grace and, and maybe God some circumstances even brings about a change or a healing, but those aren't the norm. So I would just encourage you to focus your prayers more on your brother and sister's sanctification, that they would stand perfect and complete in the will of God, and that they would be unwavering. Practical Christianity gives to those in need, verse 13, distributing to the need of saints, given to hospitality. When he says distributing or contributing, it's interesting, he uses the word koinoneo. And that's our word for what? For fellowship. For fellowship. But it actually means a mutual participation. That's what it means. It describes in this instance the sharing of one's possessions with another. That which you, had co- you have, you, you now make it common for others. It's the word for participation in needs. Now we have a benevolent fund and a mission fund to do this. You, you saw in Acts what 242 here in your bulletin, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in what? Fellowship, right? The commonality that they had together as brothers and sisters in Christ and in breaking of bread, you know, from house to house they were sharing and in prayers. And it goes on to say they had all things in common and they gave to those who had need from really the, the common storehouse of God's blessing. That's a giving church. And then he says, given to hospitality, and we'll spend a little time on this. The word her hospitality is uh, composed of two words, philos, which means loving, and xenos, which means a stranger. So it means love to a stranger. Now, Handbook of Biblical and Social Values by uh, Pilch and Molina. Really good little book. But he has a little section in here on hospitality. And here's what he says. This is the process of receiving outsiders and changing them from strangers to guests. This value clearly serves as a means of attaining and preserving honor in a culture, which is the core cultural value. In the world of the Bible, Hospitality is never about entertaining family or friends. 
Hospitality always is about dealing with strangers. To show hospitality to strangers is to receive them. You know what's interesting? I'll stop there before I continue. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. The nation of Israel was completely unhospitable to Jesus, except for few. If strangers are to be done away with, either physically or socially, their reception occurs in three stages. One, strangers have to be tested. That's interesting, isn't it? Strangers have to be tested. They pose a threat to any community since they are potentially anything, can do anything one cares to imagine. So, yes, stranger danger. That's what he's talking about. Then he goes on how they did this in the early church. Number two, the stranger takes on the role of a guest, the immediate re-role of a guest. In transient, strangers lacked customary or legal standing within the visited community. It was imperative that they find a patron or a host. So there would usually be a host family that would take these strangers in after they have been vetted, after they have been vetted by the community. And then they had precise rules on how they were to operate. And then the third thing he says, there's a whole lot more, but the guest never leaves the host with the same status as upon their arrival. They're a guest when they come. For the stranger guest will leave either as a friend and a member of the community or seen as an enemy. They really truly don't belong to the community. So I did more reading on this. Our English dictionary defines hospitality as friendly treatment for someone. The definition is based on the Latin root hospice, which means guest. The Latin root is the basis of reworded, related words like host, hostel, hostel, hotel, hospice, hospital. All of those words. Hebrews 13.2 says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The word angels, angelos, means messengers. So saying that, look, Abraham entertained angels, remember? He was a great host. Showed great hospitality. But you just may merely be attending to a servant of God, unawares is what he says. Remember this. From the beginning, believers gathered in homes. And they really didn't, didn't have big homes. There were a few people who did. But I was actually reading about the history of Rome and how people lived, and they actually lived in apartment buildings. The majority of people lived in places one on top of another. And I don't even know if there was a social status, whether you got the ground floor or the upper floor. But when the scripture says they broke bread from house to house, it was a meal that they were sharing, along with the Lord's Supper. They were practicing hospitality even to strangers who might enter in. But there were clear guidelines. Hospitality was vital to early missionary activity in the church so that the gospel could could spread. When Jesus sent out his 70 disciples, he says, what? He gave them some really unusual directions, right? No mission board does this. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Don't greet anybody on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest upon them. If not, it will return to you. 
Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. That's really unusual. They didn't even take anything. In other words, go out and depend on the hospitality of people to take you in. Why did Paul, and how could Paul travel so freely like he did wherever he went? He never raised support. In some instances, he was thankful for it. Sometimes he had the labor himself. But doors were open to him. And I read the ordinary missionary, whether apostle in any sense of the word or evangelist, would have been helpless if it had not been that he could count so confidently on hospitality everywhere. From this fact comes one reason why Paul, for instance, could plan tours of such magnitude with assurance. He knew that he would not have to face any problem of sustenance in a strange city. So he writes in Romans 16.23, Gaius, mine host. Gaius was hospitable to him. And of the whole church, salute you, or ask this, the chamberlain of the city, salute you, and Cortus has a brother. Now turn quickly, just a little bit in the time we have left. You may have never seen this, but in, look in Third John for a moment. Verse 4. I have no greater joy than to bear that my tear that my children walk in the truth. Just like you as a parent want your children to walk in the truth. But look what he says in verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. He's commending them for practicing biblical hospitality. Who have borne witness of your love before the church, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow, fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with his malicious words, and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren." very unhospitable man, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So the church was scattered abroad because of persecutions at that time. The diaspora, they went everywhere preaching the word of God. How did they survive? There were no hotels, motels, the things that we see today. The the. The motels, if you want to call them that, the inns were places of ill repute. No Christian would want to go there. How did they just spread and take the gospel everywhere? They depended upon the hospitality of others who took them in. And you can go to the Old Testament. Israel was, was commanded to treat the aliens among them with kindness, remembering that they were once what? Aliens in Israel. And actually in, in Ezekiel, I'm not sure what chapter, they might have been around 37 or somewhere around there, where God tells Israel that when the aliens come into the land, they're to give them a portion of the inheritance. Strangers, aliens, that would come into their land. So, this openness to fellow Christians also presented a problem of false teachers seeking refuge and support in Christian homes. 
Second John 2.10 says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, what doctrine? The doctrine of Christ, the true teaching of Christ. Don't receive him into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. That doesn't mean that if a JW or a Mormon comes to you and wants to talk and you want to share the gospel with them, that you can't open your door to him and have him come in so that you can have a, a friendly conversation. That doesn't mean that. It means you're not entertaining them as a guest, as a traveling preacher of the gospel. You're vetting them according to their doctrine. I'm going to read you one statement before we go from the, a book called The Didache, The Teaching of the Twelve. It's one of the earliest Christian documents that we have. Here's what it says. Every apostle who comes to you, that's messenger in a general sense, let him be received as the Lord. But he will remain except for one day. If, however, there needs to be the next day, grant him the next day. But if he remains three days, he is a false prophet. But when the apostle departs, let him take nothing except bread till he gets to his next place. If he asks for money, he is a false prophet. If he who comes as a traveler, help him as much as he can, but he shall not remain with you for two or three days, this is another paragraph, if there be need, but if he will take upon his abode among you, in other words, he wants to stay with you longer, being an artisan, in other words, means he has a trade, then let him work to eat. The earliest Christian document. If he has no trade, provide according to your understanding what is necessary, but let no idler live with you as a Christian. If he will not act according to this, he who is one who is trying to make gain out of Christ's name, beware of him. So, today's things are much different than they have been for a long time. Missionaries look to be fully supported before they leave for the field. They're fully vetted before they go. And by the way, even in the biblical times of Paul, when people went forth and you're to take the alien or the stranger among you, there were often letters of recommendation from churches. They were vetted. They were vetted. They had the correct, correct document, docu, doctrine as well. So the hospitality commands in the Bible take on a contemporary relevance. We're no longer in that situation. It's not a good idea to take a stranger into your home even if they sound like a Christian. You do not know who or what they are capable of. Right? We have many people looking to the churches for money. Oh, dozens and dozens and dozens of calls I've received over the years for money. People come and they say they want food. But they don't really want food. They want money. They all come with a story. Many times, the very same stories. I've heard them all. I could repeat them to you. What I'm saying is, you know, not to be unkind toward people that are in need. But don't support freeloaders. The church should never support people begging for money. Freeloaders. The early church didn't. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. That sounds unloving, right? That's, that's Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. The other day I saw, I heard about a woman who had a sign, and you may have seen this sign, will work for food. So she went out and she got the guy. 
a nice meal, happy meal, I guess, or whatever it is from the nearest fast food restaurant. She brought it by, gave it to him. She says, I don't have any work for you, but I do have some food. She walked away, looked back, he threw it in the trash. He didn't want money. Or he didn't want food, he wanted money. I'll never forget one time, I took Emily, and she was little. We stopped at In-N-Out Burger on Massachusetts Avenue over in Spring Valley. And there was a guy begging for, he said, I'm really hungry, I'm really hungry. I said, well, buy you something to eat, and, you know. And, uh, but he kind of walked away, and he's hitting other people up. And I thought that was strange. And, and, and then Emily says, Dad, is he, is he hungry? I said, no, he ain't hungry. He wants money for, for drugs or alcohol. And she says, well, how do you know? I says, just watch. So he got money, walked away. We followed him. Where do you think he went? To the nearest bar. To the nearest bar. Yeah, be careful. Don't let people take advantage of you. So the challenge in closing is this. And we could work on this as a group. How do we show biblical hospitality... In a, in a contemporary relevant way. And Christian love for fellow believers who we don't know, who may be strangers in our midst, who may come with special needs, without getting taken advantage of, which will probably happen. I've been taken advantage of. So let me just say a couple things. Making people feel welcome begins at the front door of the church. Very important. People who are at the front door of the church, that's the first impression people have, visitors of your church. Very important. Some churches host meals at the church. They have it ready to go. Invite people who who don't attend a church or maybe another Christian from an area to have the meal with them. That, That is a ministry. I knew a church who had a muffin ministry. And the ladies would bake, and every visitor would come, and they'd get six, six muffins or eight muffins to go home with. Or they, you know, do different type of creative things. We have a, what we call a hospitality table, just as other churches have, to converse with guests. Listen, folks, if you see a guest out there, you invite them to eat first. Same way when we have potlucks. They go to the front of the line. They're guests. We're showing hospitality. Make them feel welcome if they're outside. Get to know them. That's the idea of fellowship. Some churches have outreaches to immigrants. You have to be careful, right? A lot of immigrants have lots of needs. Not all of them are nice people. But usually the outreaches to immigrants are evangelistic, so it really doesn't fit the biblical definition of practicing hospitality to other Christians. We've supported ministry to Muslims for many years. We had one in the summer. We had you know, 50 people here, and we just cooked hot dogs for them. That's all we had. They were very, happy, very thankful. Chinese, 20 people from Chinese church couldn't even speak the language, but they came here and they, feel, they felt welcome. And then they went out and they served the Lord. Then they hosted a meal in Kennedy Park for 50 refugees, women, and their children. So that's, that's the idea, at least in part. I want to share, close with this, these couple thoughts. 
I could remember when Marie and I first visited church in San Diego. And after church, someone came up to me and invited us to lunch. First time we were there. And then I found out that that was their regular practice. They had people in church assigned to doing that every week. And they took us to a hometown buffet type of a restaurant so people can get whatever what they wanted. And it made a good impression on me. It really did. And that person who invited me became a friend. He became a friend for a long time. And a couple of years ago, he was going through a real difficult time. And he told me he, feels like, he felt like a spiritual orphan. And he came here. And this church took him in. And we showed him biblical love. And he would come every Monday morning and pray. And pray with me and the other men for years. And when he died, he left this church a generous monetary gift. The hospitality went full circle. You never know what somebody's action toward you or your actions toward them will reap in the end. But you just do it as unto the Lord. You can individually invite guests, church guests into your home. You can take them out individually if you prefer to do that. Most families do not have house you know, extra guest houses or prophet chambers like you find in the Old Testament. That's nice if you do. But we've used the Chatham House for that purpose on many, many occasions to take care of missionaries or other Christians or whatever from, you know, who, who may be here who had a special need. We, we've housed people there. Now, we're careful about that. And, you know, we've been burnt, too, in doing that, taken advantage of. But there's so many ways that we could look at this and go, how can, we, how can we show hospitality, even in a contemporary relevant sense of the word, if we can't do it the way they did it in Bible times, taking aliens in and things like that. So pray about those things, and then maybe God will put some ideas on your mind and come to me and the elders and say, yeah, how about this? I thought this might be a good idea. Maybe we can host a community meal, go door to door and just invite people and just come as our guests. And we're, we're going to serve you. We're going to serve you food. Get to know us.